Geek Nerdery. Player one, press start to play. So, Graveyard Duck, episode number six. We are talking about Dragon Warrior, or Dragon Quest, if you're not from the U.S., uh, developed by Chunsoft, published by Enix in Japan and Nintendo here in the U.S., um, and released in Japan in 86, and U.S. didn't get our release until 1989. Mm -hmm. So, kind of late in the NES era, but still one of the kind of, I guess, cornerstone earliest RPG examples that at least... I was ever exposed to. How about you? What were your early memories of this yeah. game? Um, about the exact same, really. I mean, I played Final Fantasy a couple of years before when it came out, um, but uh, Dragon Warrior was one that you know I, I had seen it in Nintendo Power and, and seen it, you know, kind of the hype and everything, but didn't buy it when it came out. But then um, you know, Nintendo Power had the uh, if you renewed your subscription or if you got a new subscription, then they would give you a copy of Dragon Warrior for free. Uh, so, of course, I had to, you know, beg and plead to to renew my subscription just to get a free game. And that's kind of my that was my first exposure to it, really, was getting it free from Nintendo Power. That explains a lot, because I, I didn't know that they did that. My Nintendo really? Power subscription started after this. OK, but this is one of those games that I was going to say, like, was one of the most abundant cartridges I've ever seen. Like uh-huh. everybody I knew had dragon warrior at one point i yeah. have copies of the instruction manual somehow like it's yep. this was now you know everywhere. why yeah now i now i know why um yeah and i don't know if it's true or not but i've always heard the rumor was the reason that they did that was because it didn't really sell all that well in the u.s release probably because you know there was a, a good three-year period between the original release and the u.s release um so the rumor i'd always heard was that um Nintendo had a lot of unsold copies and was trying to find a way to, you know, to, to move them. And I think that that was probably a perfect way to do it because, you know, again, growing up when your average game price probably adjusted for inflation today would be about 80 or $90, you know, again, you weren't exactly getting games all the time. So the fact that you could get a free copy of a game for subscribing to Nintendo power for, I don't know what it was then, like $20, $30 a year or something like that. I, th- I think so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that that's a pretty damn good deal. So. Right, right. Yeah, and I also think that at that point, um, I mean, we're talking about, what, mostly like 8, 9, 10-year-old kids that were playing Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we knew Mario, we knew Zelda, we knew things like that. But like RPGs weren't really, like that wasn't a term that people really knew that much. Um, mm-hmm. Like I had a couple of friends who played Dungeons and Dragons, but actually, no, that didn't even start until you know, kind of the early '90s. So, uh, yeah, other well, than been around since like the '70s, but it, uh, yeah, unless I'm you just, were playing, I'm just saying yeah, within my circles, like RPGs, I suppose. Right. Yeah. yeah, the tabletop thing was not something that a lot of eight, nine-year-olds were playing. Um, That's true. So the the like video game RPGs, like. I don't think that there was something that we just had a whole lot of exposure to. And there was Final Fantasy, there was this, um, there were a couple of these like really rare examples, but that was kind of it. It wasn't huge. Mm. Um, and so I can remember when this game, I, I don't remember who it was when it first came out, but I mean, it was pretty early, early on. Um, I picked up a copy just because it seemed, I mean, it's an amazing cover of the, mm-hmm. just a, sure. this great like almost like oil painting of a knight fighting a dragon like it just looks epic and awesome so i picked up a copy of it started playing and i just remember being like really confused and thrown by like what what am i doing Mm -hmm. like it's turn-based like you don't have just free reign to just go you know kill monsters like i'm not swinging a sword i can go anywhere on the map It's it's a very different feel and i think that this became a lot of people's introduction to rbgs 
Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you there because like I was saying, it unless you were exposed to um, computer RPGs at that point, um, which were pretty niche, I don't really, I wasn't really exposed to a whole lot of them at that point, but just growing up and reading gaming magazines in the grocery store and stuff like that, like I remember reading about them and seeing ads for them and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. This is probably one of my first exposures to um, what a turn-based RPG actually was. And I think leading up to the release, I think that, especially Nintendo Power, I think they went out of their way to kind of show you what type of game this was, you know, how it works, um, you know, that you pick commands, it's, you know, um, turn-based kind of thing. Yeah, I think they really wanted to emphasize that this is not your typical game that you would find on the NES, and here's how you play it. Right. Um, yeah, Nintendo Power hyped it a lot. There was a ton of coverage in the counselor's corners, classified informations. Um, I can remember one of the um, counselor's corner sections that it was just like, how do I beat some of the tougher bosses? And instead of listing the game that this was a question for, it just said role-playing games. So like uh-huh. they had tips that were just generic for here's how <laughs> RPGs kind of work. Like you need to level up and slowly work your way out from the starting area. And it's it's just a game concept that like was unfamiliar. Um, so yeah, Nintendo Power did a lot of those little things. They did a pretty decent amount of coverage for this game, including uh, one of my favorite things they ever put out was a special little mini strategy guide just for this game. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what, it was somewhere during the second or third year, it was an insert in there. But it was one of my favorite things because not only did it give you really in-depth coverage of a lot of this game, um, but just some of the artwork was unbelievable in there. And it like really got your imagination going. And you could see that this isn't just this generic basic game with there's this tiny little blue and pink two-dimensional knight, you know, that's walking through generic hills, fighting slimes and blobs and things like that artwork in that book made this feel like a whole huge world. And I think it made it, it allowed this game to be successful, whereas otherwise it might've just been a, this is frustrating and weird and we don't get it over here in the U S and that was the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's the, the one that the book that I'm thinking of then, cause I still have my copy I'm looking through and there's an entire, um, uh, like there's an entire two page story basically on like the history of the, the kingdom, even before the game started. So, um, you know, even just reading through this, then you, you kind of get the feel that this is kind of an epic quest that you're sort of embarking on. And, um, I think it's, uh, it's about 35 pages or so with maps and, um, details as far as spells and items and stuff like that. So, um, Really interesting how they kind of break everything down for you. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I mean, it, it does. And it, and I think that was necessary. It spells out, you know, the different spells and how you're going to get that. And it doesn't, like, tell you everything. Like, you're not... I, I wouldn't call it, like, a full-on player's guide. You know, there's a lot yeah. that it still leaves open. It's enough to get you started and not right. feel completely lost. Right. Um, which, and I mean, this this would be an easy game to get lost in. And it's one of the things that I think is the most brilliant about it because, you know, at this point we had no expectation. There was no um, template yet. We then have since seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds of RPGs that have come out. And now there's kind of this expectation of how things flow. There's a linear feel to them. Whereas one of the things that I absolutely loved about this, and I still think it's, you know, marvelous is that, that there's like these hidden things that you're supposed to find. Um, the, the basic story is pretty simple. Like you're a hero, the princess has been captured, she's somewhere, and the dragon lord is this evil being who's you know terrorizing the land. So you have to save the princess and then also kill the dragon lord. It's separate mm-hmm. things. Um, to get to the dragon lord, you have to find these two ancient relics, combine them, and that will allow you to get to his island. Pretty simple. Yeah. But there's and like you can see the right from the beginning. It's right there. Um, You can't get to it. But they give you like very little guidance in terms of how to find any of these things. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is that in a modern RPG, as you kind of progress, you eventually will just stumble on the items naturally. In this case, 
they're right under your nose at the beginning and you have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm not going to spoil where they are because if you've never played this game, you need to, and I don't want to ruin it for you. Yeah. But I just, I love the fact that they're not where you think they are. And mm. it really does take some searching and some digging. And when you discover these items, it's just like, holy shit, like, mm. that's so clever. Like, but yeah, I always thought it was hilarious. I don't know, maybe just because I love like RPG tropes and stuff, but you know, you start off on this quest and, you know, the king's like, hey, I need you to rescue my daughter and, uh, you know, I need you to kill the dragon lord and whatever. So um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to set you up. I'm going to get you started. You know, you're going to go kill him. You're thinking, yeah, this is going to be great. And he gives you, you know, like the equivalent of like 10 or 15 bucks, right? And he's like, go to town. And right. what do you get? You know, like some worn clothes and an old club. And, and a stick. Start, <laughs> yeah, start beating slime. So... I don't know that that even as a kid playing that, I was just thinking like at the beginning, like, wow, this is it. Like I have a club and clothes and yep. I just have to kind of beat these slimes until I level up. Thanks a lot, guy. <laughs> Way to go, King. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. You cheap bastard. Get all these yeah. treasure chests in there that I can't open. But yeah, here, here's 20 bucks. Go get yourself a club and some clothes. Yeah, RPGs always crack me up. I'm like defecated in these clothes. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I never, I never found the laundromat when I was walking around town. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, RPGs always cracked me up like that because, you know, especially these ones where you're like this hero who has to save the world. And if you fail, mm-hmm. everybody's going to die. They're right. like, you're the only one who could save us. Uh, that sword that you have to have, that'll be 70,000 gold. Yeah, all right. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Or, you know, the fact that you're the only hero that can do all this stuff, but yet all these other people are just living their lives, like, in these towns that are completely overrun with monsters and nobody's picking up a stick and poking a slime? Come on. <laughs> you know? But that's that's the trope, though. I mean, that's the... You're the, uh, you know, the chosen hero. You're setting out on your quest kind of thing. And that's, you know, that's why I love RPGs. Because, yeah, they're kind of similar in some ways. But I don't know. Well, and it does, this does a good job of having that feel. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when you start off, you're not this epic hero. Like, you're destined because you're the descendant of this hero from, you know, lore. Um, But, like, Mm -hmm. you don't have any special powers. You don't have any unique skills. Like, like we right. said, you have a stick and a, some clothes, um, but it's, so you really kind of feel the, 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 the progression from, you know, rags to riches mm-hmm. and, you know, going from having nothing. And then I think it's when you hit, what is it? Third level that you all of a sudden get a spell and uh-huh. it's like, Whoa, what the hell? Like I could cast magic. Like, this is awesome. Yeah. And then you can slowly start to afford better equipment. And it's like, well, now I'm carrying a sword. Now I got a shield and all these other, you know, upgrades. And so by the time you're, you know, hitting level 20, 21, and you're going after the dragon Lord, it's like, all right, now I feel like a badass. And so now when mm-hmm. I go back and talk to that King, it's like, yeah, that's right. I saved your daughter. <laughs> right. I did it myself. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, along with final fantasy, I think this was sort of the, um, turning point as far as seeing games that you know allowed you to become more powerful throughout the game, and you know obviously you have the battery backup so you can save your progress. But just that feeling of um, like you said, leveling up and getting stronger equipment, and just uh, enjoying the progression that that entails. And not to say that other games don't have that progression as well, but you know, most of the NES games that would be like your typical platformers or um, action games or stuff like that didn't quite have the same level of progression that, that Dragon Quest did and I think that Final Fantasy did. And I think that's that's the enjoyable part is, you know, yeah, I'll I'll kill 50 slimes because I'm, I want to level up and see what my next spell is going to be. And then right. maybe I'll cross that bridge and, um, you know, maybe I'll take on that ghost or that werewolf and, uh, you know, kind of see if I can beat him. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a fun pattern. It's a very rewarding uh, kind of template that you can kind of follow. Uh, It's also probably the one thing that I would say is the detriment to this game um, Mm. in terms of the replayability of it. Um, Now, Mm. I'm going to say that, you know, this is, you know, a a favorite of mine. It was one of the first RPGs, you know, if not the first I ever played, I was obsessed with this game as a kid. I think that Mm -hmm. that, 
Nintendo Power Strategy Guide really helped because, like I said, that created a world for me. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was that you know nerdy eight year old who was running around in my basement with a plastic sword, you know, fighting invisible slimes. Like it was, you know, it was fun, and I I, I loved this world. And still do that. I, no, our our basement's gross now. I I go in the backyard instead. Are there slimes down there? <laughs> there might be. <laughs> um, but you know, it's. I, I love this game. I always have, and it's always had a you know soft spot in my heart for it. But um, it's a difficult game to replay because so much of what makes this challenging is not knowing where all of these things are hidden. Mm-hmm. Once you kind of find them, that takes a lot of the exploration out. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of what this game is reduced to at that point is just a very, very long grind. And yeah. it's... It's a frustrating one because it does take a long time to get to, you know, like I, I think what I've discovered is like level 21 is the minimum you need to be to beat the Dragon Lord. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of flexibility there, but Unless more or less. really lucky, but that's probably not right. going to happen. Yeah. Um, so to get to that point, it's, I mean, it's just a, a grind. And I mean, pretty much the, the way the world is built out uh, the starting region, you have you know simple monsters. As you start expanding a little bit further, um, crossing bridges, you get into more difficult monsters that you probably can't handle yet. So really, mm-hmm. like the the formula is, you start at the first town, fight the monsters immediately around it till you can afford the best gear there at that town. Mm-hmm. Then move to the next town, repeat the process. Move to the next town, repeat the process. And it's like that's kind of the game. And every now mm-hmm. and then take a little side journey to go pick up the stone of sunlight or the staff of rain or something. But yeah. Um, but that's otherwise also kind of RPG too, though. What's that? I mean, you're, you're kind of describing the tropes of a lot of RPGs too, though. I, I am, but I feel like at least in a lot of others, there's more story going on or there's, sure. Um, sure. you know, maybe more dungeons, more stuff to keep you busy. Whereas I feel like with this, it's almost nothing, but just, monster grinding and yeah it's still rewarding like it's fun to do because it is you know neat to see as you level up i like the monsters so seeing their sprite you know over and over and over again is fine to me but mm-hmm. um yeah that's that's pretty much what this game is it's just fighting monsters sure. until you then go f- kill the dragon lord yeah and i think it's with dragon quest i think it's important to uh, to kind of look at it in the context of of when it came out i mean obviously you and I are both really big fans of the series. And so as the series has progressed and we've played a lot of the, the sequels and stuff, it's hard to look back at the first one and kind of say, you know, yeah, there's not a lot here. But you have to look at it, I guess, in the context of not not necessarily the 1989 release for us, but more of the Japanese release in 86 because Dragon Quest sort of came about as a reaction to Ultima and Wizardry. And those were two games that were really sort of had captivated uh, Yuji Hori that was able to kind of look at those and go, wow, these are, these are great um, games. There's statistics, there's role-playing, you know, how can I take this and, and break it down on a little bit smaller scale, uh, you know, kind of a simplified version. And I think that that's ultimately, it's interesting to me studying the history of RPGs because, you know, we tend to think of JRPGs and Western RPGs and stuff like that, but, if you look at the fact that Dragon Quest was sort of created as a response to Ultima and Wizardry, which were Western RPGs at the time, it's interesting then in in context that, yeah, this game in retrospect doesn't have a whole lot going for it besides the battles and stuff. But I would imagine for its time in 86 at release, there wasn't a whole lot like it on, on the Famicom at that point. Certainly. Certainly. So, yeah. Uh, as far as a historical, I guess, um, note to it, it's, I would say it's important to kind of look at this game in the context of its release uh, versus, you know, how we would normally look at it, I suppose. Well, and it's also the kind of thing, like, you know, I I said, as I was kind of describing, like, it's the replay value that makes it difficult or frustrating just because the the first time or even the first several times you play this, depending on how much of a gap there is between playthroughs, like, there's no doubt you are going to be plenty busy you know, for those mm-hmm. 21 levels, because there's so much exploration, there's so many areas, these these caves feel dark and massive, and, you know, you're, it's a while before you get the Radiant spell, and your torch doesn't do that much, so yeah, it's, um, 
it's it's Knock a grind. Right, exactly. But yeah, it's a grind to get through these dungeons and get a map, mm-hmm. uh, find what secrets they have, and it's once you've played it a few times and you know what's in some of the caves and which ones like, yeah, there's not even a point in going in that one or this one. I can just go straight to this point. And so it's, it's, it's the curse of having played it dozens of times that makes the replay Mm -hmm. value lessened. Um, I think for new players who are just discovering it, or if you haven't played it in a few years and you, you know, are coming back to it, uh, it's, it's unbelievably huge and it's very rewarding. And I think that, that there's, lots of towns lots of people talking to all of them kind of picking up all of the hints putting all that together it's it's a very rich and rewarding world it's just mm. it's yeah it's the the syndrome of the two dozen playthroughs that kind of turns it into nothing but a slime killing game yeah which i i don't know i mean i i tend to replay this every few years or so and i can usually i think the last time that i played through the the cartridge one um, I ended up, I beat it in probably, I don't know, five or six hours or something like that. So it was actually kind of short just sitting through and, and kind of grinding and stuff. And obviously, you know, listening to podcasts or having something else on kind of helps too to kind of yes. mitigate that. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, at first you tend to think of it as being a huge, huge world, but after you've played through it a couple of times, you have a little bit better um, way that you can go about it, you know, to say, okay, do, do I just, get far enough with the club and the clothes to get up to the town in the Northwest and get their equipment and kind of, you kind of push yourself then a little bit more to see, okay, how far can I go on my existing equipment so I can save up money for the next sword or this or that. So, yeah, cause there's no doubt that, you know, there's a shortage of money in this game. You're, you're making the joke that the King only gives you about 20 bucks. And it's like, well, right. yeah, but it's your richest. You probably only have about 50. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it's the same, you know, it's the same thing. You kill a slime and, and, and you pick up like three gold. Like, okay, first of all, where is the slime keeping his gold? Second of all, what was he going to buy with his three gold? <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It, it's so ridiculous when you start breaking it down, but it's so much fun too. Because yeah. it's just kind of a, uh, not to say that it's that it's silly. I suppose that, you know, our, the US release, you know, had like a backstory and we had sort of more of the, D&D style art on the box art and stuff like that. But if you look at the Japanese release with Akira Toriyama doing the illustrations who did Dragon Ball, um, obviously it's a little bit more whimsical. It's a little bit more uh, lighthearted. And it's interesting that the Western version went the completely different approach, you know, more of the dark, serious tone. Right. Yeah. And that was a funny thing, you know, as you kind of watch the series progress, because I think that it was like Final Fantasy, like here in the US, we had no idea that there was a completely different franchise mm-hmm. over in Japan. Um, right. And so, yeah, when w- we were playing this game and then you know, Dragon Warrior 2 and 3 and 4 all came out for the NES. And then, you know, we never got the Super Nintendo ones. And I think it was around PS1 that all of a sudden it's like Dragon yeah. Warrior 7 and all of a sudden it's like cartoony and we're like, wait, these guys look like Dragon Ball characters and chrono trigger uh-huh. characters and it's like suddenly piecing it all together and realizing like oh like that's a completely different story and you know the, right to, 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 i like i can't go back and play this first dragon warrior game and think of akira toriyama because it hmm. just it doesn't fit like this because this because yeah. i never made that association as a kid like this game was always hmm. that more dark you know the you know kind of uh I don't know, like a sinister world that's at the brink of death. Like it doesn't have that fun, cartoony Akira feel. Sure, sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Um, and even just the yeah, like you were saying, like kind of the whimsical feel. It just that's kind of what the series is, um, you know, sort of been known for, I guess, in more recent times. But there's still, especially in like, because having just finished seven on the 3ds a while back there's still a darkness to it as far as the storylines are concerned, especially in like part seven, because you have, you know, sort of these um, slightly deformed cutesy type characters, but some of the stories are really dark, you know, where like, okay, there was like an ash rain that turned all the people to stone. And, you know, one of them was a child and this and that, and just weird stuff like that. So it's, it's always been an interesting mix, I guess, of, you know, whimsical stuff and then the dark stuff. And I think, you know, especially with Dragon Warrior, then it seems like they wanted to go more with what, I guess, what 
they perceive to be like Western type um, dark RPG kind of stuff where you had, mm-hmm. you know, obviously like the Dragon Lord is very, uh, very imposing looking on the strategy guide. And then you have, you know, sort of the um, pseudo Elizabethan English text as far as, you know, thou hast uh, leveled yes. up, thou hast, you know, thou must do this and that, um, you know, which was probably a localization choice, but. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. And like you're saying, there's, yeah, there's two different schools of thought, I suppose. Um, the more that you start looking into the franchise versus what we got, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, it, th- there's some lighthearted, whimsical stuff in here. If you kind of look for it, like I always thought the ghosts were weird because they're wearing pointed hats and sticking their tongue out at sure. you. Um, uh-huh. But I just always thought that was a weird, quirky thing, you know, character to have because none of the others really have that going in fact as a kid playing this i was terrified of some of these you know monster sprites you know really maybe it's because oh yeah like and maybe it's because like when you encounter one of them as a you know in the game it like is very you don't know if you're powerful enough to take them on and most of the time if you're if you're finding them for the first time you're not so like like the the first cross up you encounter like a wyvern or something yeah, it's like shit. This yeah. is not good. Or a gi- this gigantic scorpion. Or the um, I haven't saved. I have a thousand gold. I hope I don't die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have vivid memories of like being just you know, stressed out as a kid playing this because you'd sure. find these monsters that were really powerful and strong, and it's like mm. tense because it's like now you're in the fight, and it's it's not like an action game where okay, if I have enough dexterity and hand-eye coordination, I can kill it. Sure. Like, you encounter the monster, and then the game pauses, waiting for your response. And it's like, in my head, basically what it was saying is like, you're going to die now. What do you want to (laughs) do? And it's just like, shit. Like, I know I can't run, because your odds of getting away from a fight are pretty slim. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I can't kill this thing. Like, what's it going to do? How strong is it? And like, you see that wolf for the first time. It's like, uh there's just, just no way so it's like yeah i still have these like weird like ptsd flashbacks to playing this game but uh huh. yeah but i love it it's and because yeah like you said there's there's a danger inherent in in crossing the bridges and uh encountering new enemies because you know yeah you don't have to make a decision right away but every decision that you make is very important whether that's you know to attack whether your hit points are low um, do you take the time to heal or, you know, use an herb? Um, you know, it just kind of depends. So, because uh, especially there's no, there's no hit point counters, you know, for the enemies. So you don't really know until it disappears if you've killed it or not. Right. Yeah. I mean, this kind of taught a lot of us what strategy was. And, sure. Absolutely. You know, and, the you know, the risk versus reward. Because sometimes it's like, well, I could cast, you know, stop spell or sleep, you know, which might work. But... Mm-hmm. How many times did you cast sleep? And it's like, okay, it's asleep. Great. Next turn, I'm going to attack. Oh, it woke up. Like, so you wasted your turn, you know, but you just can't predict it. You don't know. Um, That's true. So, yeah, I think that it's, it it introduced a lot of these tropes that, you know, we're, we've all just come to know as just standard now. But uh, at the time, like Mm -hmm. this, this defined them. And I played this before I ever played Final Fantasy. So, really, this, literally was my introduction um so i played final fantasy first then i played this one when i got it for um nintendo power okay i remember at the time sort of thinking i enjoyed it and i played through it and beat it but i remember at the time not liking it as much as final fantasy i guess and i don't know if it was due to the graphics or um something about it but it just didn't it didn't have the same feel for me but it wasn't until much later than you know realizing that there was such a gap in in release dates i wonder if that has here three was coming out in japan and three was huge i mean that's like one of the top rpgs of all time still to this day yeah i wonder if some of that does have to do with which one you played first because i think it does yeah i played this before final fantasy and i've always preferred this um yeah and final fantasy when i played it for the first time i just it felt off to me like that's kind of like what i like but it's not quite and i think it's because i fell in love with this and this was the formula that i really enjoyed um okay even so much so that when dragon warrior 2 came out and i started playing it um it took me a long time to warm up to it because i was used to you're a single hero not a party of three um Mm -hmm. 
and when you fight monsters you fight one at a time not you know groups of multiple enemies like it was it took everything that i knew and tweaked it a little bit and i i was not a fan of that and it took me a long time to warm up um because since this was my you know primer this became the gold standard that i compared everything else to and probably to this day still do um, Interesting. I play a role playing okay. game. Like, how does this feel compared to the original Dragon Warrior? And that probably affects a lot of whether I enjoy it. Huh. Yeah. See, I I was the opposite. Where I started with Final Fantasy, where and in the first one it was really tough because you had to you had to target each specific enemy that you wanted to attack. So let's say if a previous party member had killed that enemy and you were your second character was going to attack it. It just your attack missed so you had to really strategize okay i'm gonna attack him i'm gonna attack him i'm gonna attack him and then um so i played you know the first final fantasy i played dragon warrior and then i went to like you know final fantasy two and three on the super nes and kind of went from there and then didn't really get back into dragon quest until actually much later um when i started to play them and again i was start i was getting soured on final fantasy around after about Final Fantasy X, um, I played through that. It was okay. Um, played a little bit of twelve, and then thirteen on PS3, and kind of lost interest and stuff like that. And then, sort of through that time period, kind of rediscovered Dragon Quest and realized, hey, they're still using some of the same sound effects, you know, some of the same music, and kind of went back and just looked at the series as a whole and thought, you know, here's a series that's really kind of stuck to its roots as far as where it came from from the first game as far as the sound effects the enemies and things like that and i i I grew to respect that more i guess as far as more of a a traditional approach as far as you know we're gonna we're gonna stick to what our strengths are but we're gonna kind of expand on that with each game and stuff like that so um, right so yeah i was kind of opposite like i started with final fantasy got a little you know disjointed with it you know uh back in the PS3 days, PS2, stuff like that, and then kind of rediscovered Dragon Quest and went back and started playing more of the original ones from there. So, because uh, growing up, I only played the first one all the way through. So, uh, I had this one and part two that I played through. Uh, I mm-hmm. owned three and tried mm-hmm. it a little bit, but like where I said that two kind of turned me off because it was so different from one, three mm-hmm. just like jumped off the deep end for me. And where you can now like pick your party, and it was it was too much and i've since gone back and replayed it you know as an adult and i can appreciate it for what it is but you know there's yeah yeah. i've then played four or five six and it's just like each one of them i like less and less than the previous one and i finally just Mm -hmm. have come to the conclusion that the first one's the one i like and every one that just kind of strays a little bit more and it's just like okay i'm getting i'm getting too far away from my source and what i really enjoy and that's this one and so I'm yeah. I'm much happier, you know, even though at the beginning of the episode it sounded like I was complaining about the replay value. I'm much happier replaying this than, you know, any of the others. So Yeah. Well I think too, and you know, with being adults and stuff and having the internet and accessible, you know, we start looking into more of who directed which game and who designed what. And you start to see, especially like with Dragon Quest Six, where, you know, you had a different company sort of take over the design. You know, which obviously was a little bit different than what had come before. So you start seeing that, okay, yeah, it's still released by Square Enix. It's still Dragon Quest, but it's slightly different or things like that. And, you know, I guess growing up, you don't really, we didn't really notice those things. If it was done by a different developer, different designer, it's just, I don't remember those things being as credited as much to individuals. I mean, maybe a little bit here and there, but it was more the company. Right. You know, that it's like Enix is known for role-playing games or, you know, this or that. So I don't know. But looking back, I guess now it's funny because as an adult, you know, now I look back and say, okay, you know, back in the day, if I only got, you know, a game for my birthday or Christmas or something like that, I should have really picked like, you know, the Dragon Warrior sequels because not only would they have gotten me a lot more playtime, but had I held on to them, they would have been worth a lot more money than say, you know, a boxed copy of, Mission Impossible or pro wrestling. So. <laughs> I was going to say your, your copy of to the earth that you got for your birthday. <laughs> no, I never got to the earth. Thank God. <laughs> I, I did. Uh, that was, uh, my dad was doing his best. He thought he was going to surprise me and bring me home a you know present one day. And he's like, here you go. And I just looked at him like, yeah. you try to be like, Oh, this is awesome. But it's like, what? Right. I've never even heard of this. Yeah. <laughs> right. And still got the nine ninety five price tag on it from KB toys or something. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, it's like I always wanted. I remember when we were on vacation one time, and um, it was near my birthday. And like Mega Man Two had come out, we were like, I saw it in a mall. It's like back before we had hard release dates, and so it was just like, well, this game might show up, you know, third quarter or whatever. It's like, oh man, Mega Man Two is out. I really want that for my birthday or whatever. And I remember like getting a game for my birthday, thinking it was Mega Man Two, and like unwrapping it. It's like it was pro wrestling. Because Damn you know, it, I, I, yeah, and that's the thing is like my grandma and my grandpa got it for me, but you know, because like I used to watch WWF. I mean, who didn't growing up in the eighties? So it's like they must have figured, oh, he's gonna love this, but eh, it was all right. You got asylum to before there was the asylum. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, I had to wait. All right, um, you know, sell it at a garage sale or something. I don't know. You want to get rid of it because nobody is going to trade you for it. You know, you can't trade Ninja Gaiden for pro wrestling. It's just not going to work. No, no. Um, so we looked up a little bit of the differences here. Um, I've never actually played through the Famicom version of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I can't, you know, speak Japanese. But um, the most exactly. of what I was there's in, quite a few differences to it, actually. Yeah, and a lot of I mean, it seems to be graphical. Uh, do you know anything uh-huh. beyond the the sprites and the just graphics that's different uh there's no battery backup so it's password saves okay really interesting actually because um i don't know if it's either like a 16 or 32 character password but it's i think it's an incredibly long password so you know think about the fact that we did have battery backup saves for dragon warrior which is really a blessing because i don't know how much i would be writing down huge passwords every time i leveled up and, uh, you know, I had to go back to the king and get my password. So, right. but at the time, obviously 1986, it wasn't really a thing, at least in, in Japan, as far as Famicom games, you know, having battery backups. Even The Legend of Zelda at the time was on the Famicom disk system. So you had a disk that would save just automatically. You know, I think the battery backup actually came out with Zelda here because we didn't have the FDS. Right. So luckily that was applied to Dragon Quest, but. Um, outside of that and the graphical differences, there's not a lot else. There's one other thing. There's a um, little sexual innuendo in the Japanese version that's not in the uh, the American one. And I don't it seems know to be a running theme. It was like a running yeah. theme through the whole franchise. Yeah, the puff puff. Uh huh. I don't remember which town it's in, but um, so basically, um, you know, a puff puff is Japanese onomatopoeia for a girl rubbing her breasts. Either you know in your face or just just rubbing them, and that's the the sound I guess that they make. So, uh, I don't know. but kind of funny though. And then later on, like you said, yeah, they show up in later games because uh, I was playing seven, and uh, there's at one point and she's like, "Oh, would you would you like a?" I think she says a puff puff or something like that, and then she just pulls out this trumpet and just blares this trumpet right in your face. <laughs> so, so they start getting more tongue in cheek with it, you know, as the series progresses, but. Yeah, um, a lot of the graphical things are kind of fun. Like if you Google it and kind of look at the pictures, like it's it's interesting to see the the hero sprite is slightly different. The king looks a little bit different. The guards, um, well, nothing's your, your sprite doesn't even change directions. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. So you actually just kind of it's more almost like a like a board game really or a tabletop game where you're moving a piece around. Right. Yeah. Instead of moving, you know, instead of walking around the world map, it's just kind of like sliding you know, yeah. around, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see some of the different looks, but um, all of it's pretty minor, like nothing really affects gameplay. So, sure, sure. but yeah, the, the, the save function, that's an interesting, yeah. interesting thing. And yeah. yeah. Thank, thank yeah. God we had the battery. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting too, though, if, you know, if you're interested in, in ever learning Japanese or, um, you know, trying to decipher some, some Famicom games and stuff like that, it's really, it's not too terribly hard to learn, um, the katakana and uh, hiragana because that's primarily what the famicom games used because they just didn't have they didn't have the memory space available for the complex kanji characters so playing dragon quest games actually in japanese if you know or if you have a katakana chart it's actually not too bad because most of those words in katakana are are loan words so it's basically their english words translated into japanese so if you're looking to kind of learn a little bit of Japanese, um, Dragon Quest games actually aren't too bad, at least the early ones, because you can kind of um, get a little bit of feel for the language that way. 
They didn't try to translate like the and thou and all that kind of stuff, did they? No, it's not. Um, that was. It doesn't have that kind of text in it. It's That's more, good. <laughs> it's more of just like what the later games are, where it's just very direct and that's it. So, and obviously all the names are different too. Right. Right. All right. Should we get to some chips and tricks here? Sure. Sure. Tips and tricks. Um, so I've got a few here that I think are, you know, very spoiler free. I don't want to ruin anything for the players that have not played through this. I think it's, like I said, definitely worth doing, but there's a couple of little things I can throw at you that are going to help you get a little bit of an advantage. Um, as we mentioned before, money is incredibly tight, and you're going to spend most of the game just, you know, farming and grinding scr- uh, slimes and uh, other enemies just to have enough money to earn or to buy some better equipment. So there's a couple tips I've got here that'll just help you make some more money or get money quicker. Um, the first one is after you've reached level three and you have the heal spell, you can actually avoid ever having to sleep at an inn again. Um, in Tannagel mm-hmm. Castle, there's a sage down in the uh, southern part of the town or the castle that will, when you talk to him, he will reheal or refill your magic points. So talk to him, get your magic points filled up, cast your heal spell over and over until you're healed. Talk to him again to get mm-hmm. your magic points back up. You're now at full strength and you saved, uh, you know, 20, 30 gold at the end. Um, sure. It, be- it becomes a little bit more frustrating later in the game as you get further from the castle but a chimera wing or a walk back to town, which you have to come back to save anyway. Uh, quick way that you can you know, heal and not have to spend money to sleep it in. Um, next one that I've got is as you start going through like some of the caves and decide that you're going to start grinding and finding some you know, treasure there, it's, it's a good source. There's some d- dangerous monsters in the caves, but a lot of those treasure chests... Uh, some have, you know, just a couple of gold, but there's a couple that, you know, you could find that have 100, 200 gold in them. Um, pay attention to those chests and remember where they are, because when you leave the cave and come back in, they respawn and you can collect mm-hmm. them over and over and over again. Um, it's a good way to get more money and also, you know, get a little bit of a needed XP in the process too. So mm-hmm. um, last one that I have to help get some money is there's a cave just slightly southwest of Tannagel Castle. Uh, you won't be able to survive there until probably maybe level 7 or 8, but um, it's a cave surrounded by mountains, and if you uh, are familiar with the game, it's the one where you're going to find the Fighter's Ring. Um, down, I think, in like the third or, f- or second or third level of the dungeon, there is a chest that has like 115, 120 gold or so. Pay attention to where that one is. And keep going in and out of the cave over and over and over again, collecting that chest. Because about one in every ten times you open it, it's actually going to have the cursed necklace instead of gold. Now, this is an item you do not want to use because it will, as the name implies, curse you. Um, But what you can do is you can take it and sell it at a shop. And it sells for 1,200 gold, which pretty much at any point in the game is a huge amount of money. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's 1,200 slimes that you'd have to kill. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if, if it's early in the game, that's going to get you some great equipment. If it's late in the game and you're trying to save up for the Silver Shield or the Flame Sword, like, that's going to take a big chunk out of that. So, um, let's see. What else do I got here? Oh, one other tip that um, kind of just makes the game a little bit easier to play. One of the most elusive items that you're going to find is the magic keys that lets you open all of the locked doors. And now... It's going to be a while before you get the first key. Uh, you'll find them in a shop over in Rumildar, which is in the eastern continent. Um, once you get over there and get some keys, I recommend that from that point forward, you always keep one key in reserve in your inventory and never use it because there's another shop in Tannagel Castle that actually sells keys as well, but it's behind a locked door that you need a key to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's much more convenient to be able to go shop for keys there than having to go all the way over to Rimbildar and get more. Um, I think they're like 10 gold more in Tanagale than they are in Rimbildar, but still mm. much more convenient, much more centrally located. So always keep one key in reserve, and then you can just buy them there instead. Mm. Uh, now, the last tip I've got is one that I'm guessing most of the p- listeners here don't know about. Um, it's a kind of obscure one that I think is really interesting. Um, what you name your character in this game actually matters. Um, 
so I'll try to explain this as, as simply as possible without getting too complicated. But basically, in the game, there are four stats that are going to increase as you level up. Your strength, your agility, your hit points, and your magic points. Now, it kind of seems like as you level up, it's just a random determination, like how many hit points you gain when you gain a level. It's not random. Um, but what the game does is it has a predetermined like default value for each of those four stats at each level. You know, for example, at third level, it's going to be, uh, I don't know, your, a third level character is going to have, say, 10 strength and 12 agility, 20 hit points and 30 magic points, something like that. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. That That's the default number. When you start a new game, the cartridge is going to pick two of those four stats and say that for the duration of the game, it's going to use the default numbers for those two. For the the other two stats, it's going to apply a uh, penalty to this to the default numbers of that somewhere between like a five to ten percent penalty. Um, hmm. Now, the way the game determines which two stats are going to use the default numbers and what penalty it's going to apply to the other two is based on what you name your character. There's a hmm. kind of complex algorithm it uses where it assigns a numerical value to each letter and each character and does a bunch of crazy funky math to figure it out um now obviously there are thousands of options here because you've got 26 letters 10 different numbers spaces special characters capitalization affects it it's limitless combinations but um mm. i would say that the it's kind of fun just to play with it and if you play through a game and notice that you you know didn't have as many hit points as you thought play through it again try a different name you might get more that time um mm. to save you guys some trouble I have played with the algorithm enough to come up with four names that are both easy to remember and are also examples of the four best possible combinations you can have of your stat scores. So if you want to give yourself kind of a boost going through the game and maximize your stats, pick one of these four names as you play. Um, if you want to maximize your hit points and your magic points and still have the smallest possible penalty for your strength and agility, name your character Hero with a capital H, H-E-R-O. Um, if you want to go the opposite and go maximum strength and agility, but uh, minimize your penalty for hit points, magic points, name your character Luigi with a capital L. Huh. Uh, for strength and hit points, name your character Mario, lowercase m. And for agility and magic points, name your character Evil, capital E-V-I-L. Huh. This is all fascinating because I had no idea that... Um this kind of trick even existed yep. until you told me about it this week. My mind was blown. Yeah. It's, it's a fun little way that they added some randomness to it without having to go to extra lengths to have, you know, random number generators, you know, adjusting mm -hmm. stats. And it's, sure. it, it's the funny thing too, where like I've played this game, I don't know how many dozen times and I just always picked the same name. Like I just, right. just kind of yeah. a default name I went to. So I always put my name in whenever I would, you know, create a character on these kind of games. I I mean, that was part of the immersion of it. Yep. Never thought of putting in a different name to get different stats. Yeah. And so the, like I was just kind of used to, like I said, the name that I always used meant at level 20, I cannot kill the dragon Lord unless I randomly get a critical hit or something mm -hmm. at level 21. I can do it. No problem. So I've got mm -hmm. just enough magic points to, cast all my um, hurt more heal mores and just enough hit points to hit him enough times before he hits me and 21 I could do it 20 I can't but that's just because of the combination I got from the name that I used um, switch the name up a little bit and you can get a little bit more magic a little bit better agility something like that so it's hmm. it's, it's very interesting that they're that they were kind of head doing that but um, yeah yeah so if you want to experiment on your own go for it or if you want the uh, four best combinations, Pick one of those four. I tried to find some that were easy to remember. Yeah. And it is interesting, given that um, at the time that, you know, your stats, you didn't really, you weren't in control of which ones you leveled up. I mean, it just kind of, it would randomly assign different ones. So right. it's kind of interesting then to, to sort of have an edge then if you want to go back on another playthrough and, and almost, it's not really like playing as different character classes, but it kind of feels like that a way, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if you go with the, you know the one where you're maximizing your strength and agility, right. you know that might give you the the huge combat advantage um, mm -hmm. versus agility and magic points. You know would be a, a much right. different 
kind of strategy. Um, sort of a, a really, a really uh, archaic version of you know playing as a fighter or playing as a mage, maybe. Kind of, yes, kind of. Yeah. And, and you know the the penalty that it applies to the two stats that are not your default. Like I said, it's not huge, but right. at, mo- at most it's ten percent. Huh. And I mean that's if if you think about like what some of your stats are when you level up, think like okay, add ten percent to that, and that's what it could be if you had a different name. Hmm. Fascinating. So, yeah, pretty interesting hmm. stuff. Yeah. So, tried to keep it spoiler free because, like I said, I think the one of the most fun parts about this game is this world feels very big, and there's four or five very important things you have to find, and it's up to you to figure out where they are on the map. And uh, mm-hmm. I just I love that discovery of it, and I'm not going to ruin that for someone. No, no, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, it's it can't it can't be said enough how much of an influence that dragon warrior was to rpgs just as a whole not only in sort of introducing an entire generation of console gamers to what rpgs actually were but you can see how all of these design decisions sort of bled into every other style of game uh, throughout the years absolutely so as far as progression as far as um you know characters and uh leveling up and things like that and discovery and just you know, it for as much as we say, yeah, there's nothing but battles in this game. It's really it it deserves its place in history as far as you know the history of when you're talking about video games and RPGs in in general as well. That um, you know, Dragon Warrior was a pretty big deal when it came out in Japan. I mean, it was it did a lot of things for console RPGs that hadn't been done yet, and really set the precedent. So. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but um, I think it was the the launch of Dragon Quest Three was so huge that I think it released on a Friday, if I remember right. And there were, from what I have read on it, there were like you know tons of kids that had skipped school to get their copies of it. And, you know, even uh, members of the Yakuza had had tried to get copies for themselves and you know steal them and resell them and things like that. And I think it was because of the Dragon Quest Three launch that it was ever since then and it was kind of a thing that you know no more big game releases on weekdays you know thanks to dragon quest 3 pretty much huh so i thought that was kind of funny yeah no i did not know that here's another one um that's kind of interesting so um the the music that was composed by koichi sugiyama um have you ever heard the story of how he became sort of the composer for the dragon quest series no so he was a um Japanese composer for uh, mostly like television and advertising for the most part. And at the time um, when Enix was just getting started, they had published um, a couple of games. First, they had published, a, I believe, a Shogi game and uh, Yuji Hori had produced uh, Portopia Serial Murders. And so Sugiyama, I guess, wrote a letter to Enix about the Shogi game. I don't know if there was um, a discrepancy in it, like a rule or something like that. And so he wrote in to kind of say, Hey, um, I think this is, you know, isn't quite right or something like that. And they were kind of like, huh, his, you know, this guy's name is uh, Sugiyama. So they contacted him back and they said, you know, by chance, are you the Sugiyama that composes for TV and, and advertising? This is, you know, yes, I am. And I think from what I've read, you know, they kind of just, Yuji Hori kind of asked him, Hey, would you be interested in, composing the music for this game I have coming up called Dragon Quest, thinking that, nah, there's no way in hell. I mean, he's already got this huge career or whatever. And he was just kind of like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And they were kind of just like floored as far as uh, the fact that, you know, this super well-known composer had just agreed to basically do the music for a small Famicom game. I think he said in some of the interviews, I think he said he came up with, you know, some of the, the jingles and stuff within a very short amount of time, just from due to the background in advertising and TV and stuff. And just, so you think all of these iconic sort of melodies and uh, music that have permeated the entire series um, kind of almost came about just by chance. And just by uh, the fact that, you know, he wrote a letter to the company complaining about the Shogi game. Man, that's, that's really interesting. I like that story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So and then he, just, stu- he stuck like around and, he stuck yeah. around and composed the whole franchise, didn't he? Yeah, I mean that's just you know that's along with Toriyama's artwork. I mean that's really what what makes Dragon Quest Dragon Quest at this point, and and that's one of the reasons that I enjoy it so much now. As far as 
it's it's almost a tradition in seeing in all the different games that you know you have the sort of same sound effects and you have you know the same composer doing the music and so each time for me at least each time coming back to these games it's kind of like um you know putting on a an old sweater that you haven't put on for a long time or a favorite shirt or something like that there's just a um a really nice nostalgic feeling about these games yeah not something that i appreciated i guess as a kid because we didn't really we didn't have these kind of stories about it you know we didn't have the the history of it and even going through into the super nintendo and the playstation era you know and even beyond that i mean the the us really hasn't we haven't gotten as many dragon quest games as we should and i don't know if it's because you know square enix has always said well you know they don't sell very well or you know, we don't want to just put forth the effort and localize it. And it's been up to Nintendo several times to step in and either foot the bill or, um, you know, take over the production of them. And I mean, thank God they did. I'm, it's too bad that they don't sell more than they should. But um, it's just kind of it's it's sad sometimes being a Dragon Quest fan and being in the United States, I guess. Right. So, yeah, we've dealt with that with several. Of there's a lot of history to it. So. Well, and I think that, you know, you're right. Like it's there is something familiar to all of these games. And I think that really just comes back to the most, you know, important statement we could make is that the first one did it right. And mm-hmm. they've just been following the same template. Like they don't need to reinvent themselves because they nailed it the first time sure. out. And yeah. And there's room to improve on, you know, the storyline, the side quests and things like that. But your basic structure of the game is, it's solid. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Right. Really. And uh, the last thing I will say about this before we uh, close up here is that if if you're an RPG fan, I hope we've sold this enough to where if you've never played it, you'll give it a shot. Um, this, like I said, is kind of the cornerstone that originated and invented a lot of it. Um, but if yeah. you're not an RPG fan and they've always kind of intimidated you, I would say this is the perfect one to start with um, sure. because it does have such a simplicity to it. There's... Mm. You know, instead of having a huge party of characters you have to manage, you've got one character. You know, mm-hmm. when you fight monsters, you fight one at a time. Like, it's a very simplified formula, and it's very easy to manage, and it's very easy to learn. So those of you intimidated by RPGs or who've just always thought, like, eh, there's just too much to it, this is the one to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good gateway to it. I mean, I would I would equate it to, I guess... Um, for anyone that's that's a D fan i guess is you know this is kind of like what the the basic D box set would be you know versus like the later ad and um different versions so like this would give you kind of a taste of what the series is like and then if you like it from there you know there's so many other um sequels that are really really good and and worth checking out so um especially as the games went on they started developing the story more you started to get more um you know a few more things going on especially like you get to like four and five where they start they start to tell sort of multi-generational stories and they you know sort of pass down through uh you know different generations and and they do cool stuff like that so um it's it's a great series to discover and if you like it there's so many more games in the series that um you know hopefully you'll really enjoy agreed so i would say we've um done this franchise well this game at least some good justice the franchise is extensive and a lot of these fall into the category of retro gaming so i know we'll come back to it at some point oh absolutely Uh, but um yeah i would say if you don't have anything else to throw in there for dragon warrior we can uh throw in the towel yeah i uh i think that's probably good and like i said you know in the beginning just even if you're approaching this for the first time i think it's important to look at it in the context of when it came out and what it was up against because now every game has RPG elements in it now. And back when this came out, it wasn't so commonplace. And so looking at it in that light, I think uh, will hopefully allow you to appreciate it a little bit more if you haven't played it before. All right. So where can people send us their stories of their uh, first time playthroughs of Dragon Warrior? Well, you could uh, check us out on Twitter at Duck Graveyard. Um, You could check us out on Facebook. We have a Facebook page on there, uh, Graveyard Duck Podcast. If you'd like to email us, you certainly could at graveyardduckpodcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear, you know, your your stories, your memories of the game. Did you did you get it with your Nintendo Power subscription? Did you play it all night? Um, 
you know, what did you think? Did you did you love it? Did you hate it? Um, that's what we want to hear because that's what I enjoy about the show is I like hearing, you know, different people's uh, nostalgia for it and your experiences uh, with the game. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anything else uh, that you can think of at all? Nope. I think once again, we nailed it. We keep picking uh, some of my favorites and I mean, I'm sure eventually we're going to find a game that I don't like, but uh, I don't know. We're bad well, a thousand here. A good episode. <laughs> I hope we find a real stinker sometime. Like one of these days, I'm just going to pick Karate Kid for no reason. <laughs> well, no, now you have a reason. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, that's okay. So uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed it. Um, for Graveyard Duck, uh, this is Wes. And I'm Scott. And please remember to hold reset when you turn the power off to avoid loss of data. Game over.